turn with me. We are back in our study of the book of John. It's been a, uh, a three-week hiatus from the book of John, but not uh, we've not been a, away from really what we'll be looking at today. Um, for the last three weeks, I've been, well, we had Palm Sunday, then we had Resurrection Sunday, then we had Ministry Sunday, and in all of those um, different weeks, I was telling the story of before the cross, the week of the cross, which was also Passover week, and then what took place after the cross. Uh, where we're at in the book of John, we're going to finish the 11th chapter today, but the rest of John, uh, for what I was telling the 830 service, for whatever reason, well, there's a lot of reasons, and some of the reasons I know and some of the reasons I don't know, but from John 11, well, as we finish John 11, going into John chapter 12, all the way to John chapter 21, is effectively from here on out, it is Jesus entering Jerusalem, or, or he's just about approaching it and then entering Jerusalem for that Passover week. And the whole rest of the book from 12 to 21 is really that small slice of time of Jesus approaching Jerusalem, that Passover week, and then the resurrection, and the little bit of time after the resurrection. All of that, in a very short period of time, we could say less than... In a less than 60 days or so is the next chapter 12 all the way through chapter 21. And you're, So we talked about the fact that in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about 33% of the Gospels are dedicated to that final week of Jesus' life and the subsequent resurrection. So whatever reason, for a lot of reasons, God wants the body of Christ, the church, to marinate on this. So we've got a, nine chapters to go of focusing on this very narrow slice of time, which Jesus, when we get to heaven, will tell us things that we never even knew. Right? Explain even more of it. So, pick it up with me where we uh, left off in uh, John chapter 11. If your Bibles are open, uh, verse 45. Uh, so, John chapter 11, starting verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us, that one man should die for the people, and not the whole nation perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the pastor of the Jews was near, and many of them went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it. They might seize him. Let's pray again. Father, we ask 
for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that has saved us, that is keeping us, would now speak to us. Remove every distraction. Remove the enemy from anything that would get in the way of us growing in your grace or even someone being saved today. Lord, those that are online, those that are here, may we have soft ears and soft hearts. I ask once again that you remove me from the equation that we all, myself included, would hear from you, Jesus, as in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We left off here a few weeks ago with the astounding and miraculous resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And remember, Jesus was standing outside the tomb, and he simply said, although he said it with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Calling him from eternity back into time and place. And his spirit and his soul and his breath entered his body. Everyone who was there saw that miracle and was amazed. They could not deny the power and the impossibility of what they saw. That doesn't mean everyone was excited about it. Everyone wasn't excited about it. But the miracle itself was beyond anything that anyone had ever seen. A human being being dead for four days that was beginning to decay, raised up, and brought back to life. No doubt that Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, no doubt that they and the friends were overjoyed. I know how happy I am personally, and I know many of you, I know how happy you are and how happy I am when we just get a praise report of someone feeling better again. In this, in this body. I, I, I mean, I don't have to know them well. I'm happy for them. I'm like, I don't know. I know what it's like to, if you had a fever of 103 and you feel normal again, you're just happy. Ah, normal. So I'm happy for other people when they feel well. I'm happy for people when they make a full recovery from sickness. And I know you are as well. I'm happy when I hear of people that had cancer and now they're cancer free. And they don't have any more chemo treatments and any more radiation. I'm thrilled. I'm happy when people have a surgery. and We have some that are home right now still recovering from surgeries. And, and they have a return to range of motion. Some of you sitting here, I'm, I'm happy for you. I know your families are happy. I know your, the, your friends are happy. But someone being brought back from the dead? Can you imagine going to a funeral and then four days later saying, They were raised. That's a celebration on a different level, isn't it? Understand that every healing, even if you're healed from the common cold and sniffles, every healing is but by the grace of God. Everything. So don't take any of them for granted. It's all by the grace of God. But then raising someone from the dead, well, that is conclusive evidence that Jesus alone has the power for any healing. No limits. Limitless. He alone is not only the giver of health, but the giver of life. He said of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Same chapter back, back in verse 25. Just before he raised Lazarus up from the dead, he said that to Martha. But what nobody really understood there on that joyous day of Lazarus being raised, coming forth from the grave, and what we looked at in previous weeks with, uh, with the triumphant entrance, then that Passover week, 
and the cross and the resurrection, when nobody there understood, was that only Jesus was the giver of life, but that he was also very soon getting very close now, though no one understood it, he was about to give up his own life for the forgiveness of sin and that that resurrection would be eternal. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, The Sacrifice of One Life for Many Lives. The little town of Bethany, it was still buzzing. There was celebration going on. They were still trying to take it all in to absorb what they had just witnessed. Can you imagine witnessing someone raising from the dead? Talk about the talk of the town. People wanted to touch Lazarus, hug him. What was it like on the other side? I didn't want to come back, I can tell you that. Thanks for all your prayers. I was enjoying paradise. But with this unprecedented miracle, this unmistakable show of Jesus' power and his authority over the finality of death, and with all that Jesus has preached and even said of himself, that he was the Son of God, that he had been sent from God, that he was before Abraham, who was greatly revered among the Jews, that he was the light of the world, that he was the bread come down from heaven, that he was the door, that he was the good shepherd. He said every one of those things and more in the first 11 chapters. Previous chapter, back in chapter 10, he even said, I and my father are one. Oh, that was blasphemy to their ears. For him to say that him and God the Father were one? And with these and the other declarations of his deity and his assertion that he alone was able to give eternal life. Everyone wants eternal life, but where are you going to get it? Only from Jesus. Jesus continually would ask people this one simple question. He's still asking this question today. He would ask people again and again, do you believe? Do you believe? There is no salvation without first believing that Jesus is who he says that he is and that we obey what he says to do. That's where it starts. You have to believe. You first have to believe that Jesus is who he says, but then you have to believe and actually do what he says. Because you, you can't say, well, I believe that Jesus is the Savior, but I'm not ready to obey what he has to say. One, you can't have one without the other. But the, but the first point is, first, you just have to first believe that he is who he says he is. But he gives a choice. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Whether you're a priest or a pottery maker. Whether you're a Pharisee or a farmer. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Everyone gets the choice. Are you going to believe or not? First thing we'll take a look at this morning, I've titled... A prompted response. Jesus did not come to simply do miracles to impress us or even impress the world. When people are peer group, human beings like us, they do great feats of strength or any kind of thing that's notable. They not only are impressed with themselves, but they want you to be impressed. 
But that's not what Jesus came. He didn't come to impress people. He didn't need our validation. He didn't say, wow, you are amazing. We apparently, in our flesh, need validation. God has never needed validation from us. He still doesn't need validation. That's why he can let people shake their fist at God right now and say, I don't believe in you, and he still doesn't strike them dead. He doesn't need their validation. Jesus did not come to impress us. He didn't tell us stuff just to give us more information. You can get that on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else out there. Now, everything he did and everything he said was to bring people to a point of decision. Was to bring people to a valley of decision, a place of decision. A response of yes, I believe and I will follow you, or no, I do not believe and I will not. That's the, that's the place of decision that he was always bringing people to. We may like to believe that there are in-between choices, but in the end there really are not. Delayed decisions remain in the column of unbelief. Let me say that again. Delayed decisions remain in the column of unbelief. And until there's a surrender to Christ and a willingness to believe on him, there is no receiving of salvation. What he said to Nicodemus remains forever true. I love what he said to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. Whosoever believes. Whosoever. Anybody. Doesn't matter what religion they're currently in. They're a lifetime atheist. They're a communist. If they hate God, if they have just been trying to enjoy pleasures of life and they just never even thought about eternity, doesn't matter. Whosoever believes, anyone can be rescued from their place of unbelief. And praise God for many, many, look what it says here in 40, uh, verse 45, that many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. We'll come back to that. For many, and the Bible does not exaggerate, God doesn't exaggerate like you and I. You and I exaggerate in this way. We might say, man, I did a million things this week. You did not do a million things this week. You did not. I did not. But we'll say things like that. Say, man, I had a million headaches this week. Or a million obstacles. That, you know, No, no, you did not. You had, let's count them up. It was 173. It was not millions. It was not millions. But, but we use these grandiose words to kind of express. And it's okay. It's part of the phrase of speech. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not a sin. But God, when he says many believe, guess what? Many means many. Many believed. And this miracle finally convinced them that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, was the resurrection life, exactly what he said to Martha. This was proof positive. And many of them finally believed they'd already seen Jesus heal people and all these other things. They find, he really is God. He really is Emmanuel, God with us. They saw and believed. Now recently, I've told the story in the last few weeks of the cross or Jesus before the cross, then the week of the cross, and then after the cross when Jesus was raised up. None of us were there 2,000 years ago to see any of that. Was any, were any of you there? No. No, I mean, I was born in 1969, which is 1,969 past B.C. Of course, Jesus is more like A.D. 33 or something like that. But you get the point that way back when, 
this happened, and we are reading the account of it. None of us were there. I was telling the story the last couple of weeks, but in our mind's eye, we have read it, we have heard it, and we fully believe it as if we were there. As if we believe it's 100% true. I have said this before, and I, I'll say it many more times as long as the Lord keeps me in the pulpit. I, I believe what I read in the Bible more than I believe what I'll see on TV tomorrow. Amen. Now that's not even hard anymore. I get that. <laughs> that used to be hard because actually there was a lot of facts. There's a lot less facts now, so that's harder. But, but nevertheless, there's still going to be a lot of true things tomorrow. If, it's, if it says the market closed tomorrow at 100 points, that's a true fact. If it says Ford's rolling out three new cars or whatever, that's a true fact. But those, aren't, those don't change your life. Those are just facts. There's a lot of false stuff too, and we certainly don't want to listen to that. But I believe this truth more than many of the things that I can see with my eyes. I mean, I know this pulpit is made of wood, but it's not near as life-impacting as Jesus died on a wooden cross. Amen. And I wasn't there to see it, but I believe it, I believe you do as well. And uh, So, those that believed, even recently in the last couple of weeks, people that have believed, uh, we have people raise their hand, I want to give my life to Christ. I told a story. They believed in something that happened 2,000 years ago, but they believed on Christ right now for salvation. And Jesus himself would say later in this same book of John, we'll read it when we get to chapter 20, he said, Blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. I was not there, but I believe as if I was. I'm positive. No, no non-believing agnostic atheist can, I don't care if they pay me Four billion dollars, they're not convincing me not to believe this. They, they can have their money. I know it's true. But back there in Bethany, sadly, and this remains the case here in 2022, not everyone believed. Other people, ah, I need more evidence. I'm not convinced. I mean, it was probably, he probably had a setup crew in the, in the tomb. Not everybody believed. Some of those that witnessed the raising of Lazarus, they went straight to the Pharisees to tattle, if you will. They didn't say, now, interesting, they did not say that this was sleight of hand. It says they, but some of them went away to the Pharisees, verse 46, and told them what Jesus did. They actually knew it was true, and they still had hard hearts. They knew it was true. And you, I'm telling you, you have met people in your life that know the gospel is true, but they don't want to, give away, they don't want to let go of their sin. Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to. Or their control, or they have the throne of their own heart. So some of them went to the Pharisees, but they did not believe. So how would this news be received once the Pharisees hear of this miracle? Now, there was probably, without question, some people sent to Bethany from the high priest, from the religious, religious leaders who witnessed it and were making their little report and taking it back and saying, he just raised a guy who had been dead for four days. What are we going to do? Taking notes, next point, a prophesied atonement. A prophesied atonement. And so, verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council together and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. Not only have many believe, but he works many miracles. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. That's a really good problem. I wish 
everyone in Chesterfield believed in Jesus. I wish everyone in Richmond believed. I wish everyone in Virginia, everyone on the East Coast, everyone in the whole country, everyone in the whole world, but that's not where we're at. But it goes on to say, or they go on to say, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that the Pharisees and the religious leaders through previous chapters, they have tried on a couple of attempts to kill Jesus. And they have wanted him dead for quite a while. But they have yet to devise a specific plan, like a detailed outline. We're going to do this, then this, then this. It's been on their heart. It's been a known desire that they want to kill Jesus. They've had some sudden rage moments, like they lost their temper, picked up stones, and all of a sudden he vanished out of their sight. But in their minds, this miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, this specific miracle, more than all the other miracles he'd done, people that had been healed, demons cast out, people that had been lame, this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, they are thinking to themselves, this miracle will convince many more people, exponentially more, to believe in Jesus. Because nobody can deny it. Lazarus is going to be his own witness as long as he's alive. By the way, they want Lazarus dead too. And Jesus. But many people believe in Jesus, of course, for us. And for Jesus, of course, would be a great thing. But they didn't see it that way. They did not see many people believing. So they call a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. What is the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin was the Council of 71. goes back to the law uh, when Moses had been given the command to raise up 70 men, and then you have Moses himself plus the 70. But you have the 71 religious leaders of the Jews. And the Sanhedrin was like the supreme court of all the Jews and the Jewish kind of enforcement of the law. They were not just the Supreme Court. They were like the Congress, the Senate, and the Supreme Court all in one. Anything went through them. Death penalty, resolution of this issue, who's right, who's wrong, kind of like Solomon cut the baby in half, that kind of stuff. They were in charge of making these decisions. But you see their perverse logic. If we let him alone, people are going to believe in him. God sent Jesus, but they are trying to be the roadblock to anyone believing in Jesus. They have set themselves up as impediment against people coming to the Lord. Now, Jesus has worked many signs. They acknowledge that. They said he's worked many signs. The vast majority of Jesus' miracles were just really helpful to anyone who he bestowed a miracle upon him. You know the vast majority of his miracles were, most of them were people healed. Most of them were people that were healed from leprosy and diseases uh, that sometimes were decades of illness or decades of disease or decades of being disabled. Who wouldn't rejoice in that? Not the Pharisees. They did not find that to be a reason to rejoice. His miracles also included demons being cast out of people. Who wouldn't want demons cast out of them? Mary Magdalene had seven cast out of her. Uh, people fed the feeding of the 5,000, which we really believe is more like 15,000. And he did that on at least two occasions. That's just what's recorded. And lastly, he goes and raises a man from the dead, dead for four days. Now, this doesn't include other miracles, such as calming storms and walking on water, which don't feed people or heal people. They just express, oh, well, that really is God. 
who can say, peace be still, or walk on water. But most importantly, of all the miracles Jesus did then and is still doing right now today, and it's going to happen all over this world today, he is still forgiving sins and giving eternal life. Because everyone's going to die eventually, including Lazarus. He was raised back, but he still would die of something else eventually. So the greatest miracle is still the forgiveness of sins. That's why he says to the man at that one time where they lowered um, the man down through the roof, he says, take up your mat, rise and walk which he was actually forgiving him sins and healing him at the same time, where Jesus has that capability to do both. And he does it at the eternal level when he heals us from the curse of sin, but also from the curse of death. And that's the greatest miracle. But they didn't believe that he could forgive sins or that he could give eternal life anyway. They did, however... They did, however, see the miracles, and they saw that he transformed people's lives, and they saw the restored health, and they saw the people's minds restored, but their perverted response to that is, again, well, this is going to make more people believe in him. He has to be stopped. You can also see their primary concern in verse 48, where it says, if we let him alone, uh, the Romans will take away both our place and nation. Number one on their list is their power. When they say their place, that means their position, their titles. As far as the nation goes, they're talking about the nation being taken away. The nation did not belong to them. They thought the nation belonged to them. This is like our politicians say. They actually believe that your trillions of taxes belong to them. It does not belong to them. They are stewards of it. The Capitol building doesn't belong to them. The White House doesn't belong to them. The Supreme Court building doesn't belong to them. The governor's mansion doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the people. Well, in God's economy, it's bigger than that. It all belongs to him, right? It doesn't even, like, this church does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to our elders. It doesn't belong to our deacons. It doesn't even belong to all of us. It belongs to Jesus, Amen belongs to him. In the spiritual realm, everything belongs to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Matter of fact, the whole world belongs to him. That's why you, sh you shouldn't be too much like, this is mine. God said, no, it ain't yours. <laughs> the nation did not belong to Caiaphas. Right, right. The Sanhedrin didn't belong to him. The people didn't belong to him. But their number one concern was losing their position of power. Because they thought it all belonged to them. They thought the people were just their little pawns. As they always have been, these religious leaders see Jesus as a threat to their position and the power that they have come to hold and that they love holding on to. Most of them, most of the religious leaders, not all of them, Nicodemus was of them. He was probably that voice of reason saying, no, we should not kill him. We know that he does end up being that voice of reason. But most of these men were self-righteous, heartless, and corrupt. Self-righteous, heartless, and corrupt. Just like we see a lot of that uh, today, both in the religious world and also in the political world and in the business world. But they may, and they did, they may very well have loathed, and we know that they did loathe the Gentile Romans and the Roman leaders. And yet, as much as they loathed the Roman leaders, they had worked out, talking about the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the Pharisees, they had worked out quite the cozy niche of a political liaison and a working partnership with the Romans. 
we scratch your back, you scratch our back. That was well in effect. And that was something that was very noticeable when they take Jesus to Pilate the week of the Passover and they turn him over and then, of course, Pilate sends him over to Herod and right back. But this kind of, this kind of backslapping agreement they had with the Romans that they couldn't stand, that they thought were pagans because they were self-righteous, they thought the Romans were pagans, but yet they had this working political agreement was not the kind of agreement that the common people enjoyed. No, no, the common people, they lived on the edge and they had no rights whatsoever. They could be put to death in an instant, whereas the political corrupt ones, remember Jesus writes on the ground? The political corrupt ones could get away with literally murder and they would take care of each other. That's always the way it's been in the history of the world. There's an elite layer that the rules apply to you, but not to us. And that's the way it was then, and that's the way it still is today. Until God saves a person and then they say, I don't care about all this position and power and greed and corruption. I just want to serve Jesus. Then Caiaphas, as he listens to them kind of banter about, what should we do? If we, if we don't do something, they're going to take away. Caiaphas speaks up, verse 49, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, says to them, you know nothing at all. He silences the conversation and the internal debate among the Sanhedrin with these words, you know nothing at all. Not the most collaborative leader you'll ever meet, Caiaphas, telling his peer group that they know absolutely nothing. I mean, how would you like to work for this guy? He would be great on Monday. Uh, I have an idea. You know nothing at all. Um, I've worked for people close to that over the years. I, I did have a prior career before the ministry, uh, so I, I think I've seen this at times, or, or close to it. Uh, the other 70 men in the room are all well-educated, learned men. They're the other members of the Supreme Council. Uh, he's telling the, all these other 70 that they're clueless. I don't know what they're talking about. But it gets worse because he's not only arrogant and full of himself, but he's ruthless and has a murderous heart, and he's going to be used by Satan to crucify Jesus. Just like Judas will be used, Caiaphas will also be used. The word expedient, I put it up on the screen, the word expedient in the Greek, the, the Greek word was sumphero, and it means to bear, to bring together, to carry with others, to help, to be profitable. And Caiaphas's selfish in fleshly mind, he saw the murder of Jesus as a way to be profitable, to bring all the plans together, to hit all the targets with one arrow, to mitigate any various risks, or all the various risks that were out there. And his solution really represents today's modern meaning of the word expedient. You can see I put the, the modern meaning of expedient up there as well, uh, which today the word expedient can be used as both a noun or a verb, uh, but it mean, it's a means of attaining an end especially one that is convenient, but considered improper and immoral. That also sounds like today's news too, by the way, doesn't it? Uh, expedient. It might be immoral, it might be illegal, but it's convenient. Anyway, Jesus, um, in Caiaphas' view, that taking out Jesus solved all the problems. And one solution, we pull it all together, that right there solves all the issues that we're dealing with. But what Caiaphas meant as evil, 
He comes up with the solution to everyone. The bottom line, we get rid of him. We get rid of all the issues. No one's going to believe in him. We don't want to hear about him anymore. Our positions are safe. This is an expedient way to take care of it. One thing handles many other things. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for atonement. Jesus was not unaware of this plan. He knew all of it. Caiaphas' motives, of course, were vile, just like Judas betraying Jesus, but Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, and he knew Caiaphas was going to pronounce him to death eventually. Caiaphas' motives were vile, and yet he was prophesying the will of God. Look what it says. It says, um, Nor do you consider it expedient for one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Now, verse 51, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, God was speaking through this vile man something that was really going to come to pass. Caiaphas was a scheming politician, far more than he was a humble priest. But God had created the role of high priest. God had created Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood, and Moses' brother, and he created the high priest and the Levitical priesthood, and every year there would be a high priest. God had created that for his own purposes, and even though the role was being held by a dishonorable man, God still was honoring the role. Still honoring the role. And as Passover was soon approaching, Caiaphas had no idea that as he speaks what he, mean, he means to be a political solution to eliminate Jesus, what he was really doing was prophesying on behalf of the will of God that Jesus would be the solution. Not Caiaphas' solution, but God's solution to the problem of sin and death. And so he was speaking truth, much like Balaam got up and asked, you know, he's blessing the people. Are the donkey speaking? Anyone? God can use in that moment. Caiaphas had no idea, though, he was not only just prophesying the will of God, but he was literally singling out, because the, pass, the high priest was responsible for the Passover lamb sacrifice, and he as the high priest would sacrifice the Passover lamb, but he also was singling out the Passover lamb. He has no idea he's singling out the Passover lamb when he says this. No idea. He's singling him out for murder, and yet God the Father had sent his son to be the Passover lamb to take the place of all the other lambs that would be shed, and that that Passover lamb would take our punishment, a replacement, substitutionary. The, uh, the pastor in London there, Charles Spurgeon, had this to say. He said, in one word, the great pillar of the Christian's hope is substitution. That Jesus has substituted his life for our life. Jesus was and is the substitution for everyone, whether Jewish or Gentile, whether rich or poor, anyone that believes in him by faith. Now, Caiaphas is right. It is profitable to use the original meaning. It is helpful that this man would solve the issue of sin and death for all of mankind. That is more than profitable. That is awesome. That is amazing. And he would be the solution, but not in the way Caiaphas thought. Now, as far as the nation falling, that part of what Caiaphas was hoping to avoid would not even 
he would not get that wish granted because by A.D. 70, Titus would come and level Jerusalem and the whole nation would be ripped asunder and the Jewish nation would be scattered to the ends of the earth. And of course, that has been the case until 1948 when Israel was reestablished as a nation. Brings us to this last uh, section of the text, if you're with, uh, still with me here. Verse 52, and not only that for the nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So this solution would not just be for Israel, but would be for all people. Pick it up in verse 53. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. If you're taking notes, this final point this morning, and pick it up again in verse 55. Uh, if you're taking notes, this final point, a Passover preparation, a Passover preparation. Look at verse 55. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They were headed there early to get themselves clean, to pray, to go to the temple, to ceremonially wash themselves, all of that stuff, and a purification process in anticipation of the Passover. Then they sought Jesus and spoke. Now we know that this is really close to Passover which is important when you get to chapter 12, and Jesus is going to be anointed in chapter 12. Uh, Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, that he should report it, that they might seize him. From this point on, Jesus raises Lazarus. They go and tell the chief priest, there's the meeting of the Sanhedrin. It is agreed upon that he will absolutely be executed as soon as we can get our hands on him, preferably the week of Passover. Of course, that is going to happen as soon as they can get their hands on him. From this point on, the religious leaders will prioritize the killing, above Jesus, the killing of Jesus above any non-binding commitment. All the binding commitments they're still going to keep. If there's morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice, Passover all the Sabbath requirements. They're going to keep all those because these guys are keepers of the law. I mean, very rigid. And obviously they were commanded in the Old Testament to keep these things. But anything that was not non-binding, Jesus' death went right to the top of the list. It was equal to all of their binding commitments. They were, in other words, laser-focused on having Jesus eliminated. And in fact what their binding commitments as far as things like the temple um, requirements and the Passover, which was right around the corner there, all of that would be in concert. They would actually leverage that. We know that because it says in verse 56, they sought Jesus and they said, what do you think? Will he not come to the feast? They're hoping that the feast will be the net to throw over him. That the feast, he's never missed a major feast. He's not going to miss a major feast because they were required of all Jewish men. So the fat Passover itself would be the net to throw over Jesus. Jesus, at this point, will not conduct, from here forward, he will not conduct any additional public ministry until he speaks in the temple at the week of Passover. Everything else he'll do in seclusion, out in this we don't know where, where the town of Ephraim is. It no longer exists on a map. Uh, but nevertheless, it was in a wilderness area. And he would stay in seclusion other than when he, in chapter 12, will go to Mary and Martha's house, which we'll see next week. But he stays among his 
close confidants, those that are the disciples that are closest to him. He will stay in seclusion. He's preparing himself. Remember, the Jews are going to go up to Jerusalem to prepare and sanctify themselves. Jesus is preparing himself for those final steps to Jerusalem. Here forward, the wicked leaders are plotting while Jesus is preparing. He's preparing for those final steps to Jerusalem. Most of us, if, well, not most of us, all of us, I would say, all of us here, if we knew that where we were going was going to be certain death, and not just certain death, a torture-type death, we would probably change our plans. Right? We'd say, yeah, that's not worth the vacation after all. I don't want to be tortured to death. I think I will stay right where I'm at. Right. But Jesus, he was not going to reroute. He was going to Calvary. His love for the Father, his love for us, infinitely outweighed what he knew of the suffering that awaited him there in Jerusalem. He wasn't surprised about anything that was taking place there. Not only did he know, if people said, Jesus, you know, they're plotting to kill you. He not only could say, yes, I know that, but he could say, I can tell you every word they spoke in the council. I know what Caiaphas said. I know what he thinks. I know what he's planning. None of it was a surprise. All these things were prophesied. Jesus was come to fulfill the prophecies, the will of the Father, and the redemption of mankind. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied of the Messiah, that Messiah, of course, being Jesus, that nothing, nothing would deter him and that the Father would be with him right to the end. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, it's up on the screen. In Isaiah 50, it says, For the Lord, speaking, this is messianic, speaking of Jesus himself, For the Lord God will help me, written long before Jesus walked the earth, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced, Therefore, I've set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Why? Because Jesus would set his face like a flint. He would complete the mission of the cross, but then he would raise up from the dead. Not like Lazarus has to be raised. He would raise himself. He would not be ashamed, and therefore we would have the salvation that the scriptures had prophesied would come. Three chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 53 we see the term he is led as a lamb to the slaughter. Three chapters later in Isaiah 53. But Jesus is not led there like someone dragged him there. He's a lamb that willingly walks right up and says, take me. When it says led as a lamb to the slaughter, it's because he's offered himself. He was not dragged there, captured. He goes there willingly. This is the thing that your unsaved neighbors, friends, family members have to understand. Jesus came for them and for us. Then, even John, when Jesus' ministry began, back in the first chapter, what's the first thing John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Everything in chapter 1 is now coming to fulfillment right now here as he's preparing himself as the spotless lamb to go to Jerusalem. Everything is now in focus. We're going to see all the rest of the story from chapter 12 all the way to 21. Everything's in focus and none of it, none of it is by chance. 
It's all Jesus fulfilling the very steps that God ordained for him to take. All of it's by the love that's been prepared for us by God sending his only begotten son. And anyone that will believe, just like those who wisely did in Bethany, can receive this free gift that wasn't free for Jesus, but is for us. Amen? It is for us. I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that this one life has saved your life and is saving millions of other lives? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Emmanuel, the Messiah, the Son of God, the bread come down out of heaven, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the sinless Savior, and yes, the Lamb that taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus, we are so grateful, Lord, that you set your face like a flint. You knew what awaited you. You knew that you would sweat drops of blood. You knew that you would be tortured. You knew that you would be crucified. You knew what Caiaphas had up his sleeve. You knew what Judas was planning. And yet, Lord, you did that to save wretched sinners just like us. Back then, now, those yet to be born, Lord, it was all your love for humanity and for souls. And so we're thankful, we're grateful for so great a salvation. Thank you for your one life. But Lord, even if there's even one here or online that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would speak now by your spirit. Not a thing, and there's nothing I could do to ever convince a person. I know this is true. But Lord, you brought me to that place and I'm grateful for it. But my brothers and sisters would say the same. But if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you right now today as your Lord and Savior, Lord, you're always doing these things to bring us to a decision. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to any heart, even here, before we even take this Lord's Supper, Lord, you would bring another one into the family of God by the work of your Spirit. And before we do take these elements, which we're going to take in just a minute, the Lord's Supper and communion, if there's even one person here, I just want to give that opportunity. I never know who's going to show up, who's going to be watching online. If it's a person that says, I've been wondering this for years, or I almost got saved a year ago, or I didn't believe until this morning. If there's even one, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If you say, I want to finally, finally, be like those in Bethany and believe on Jesus for my salvation. Just raise your hand if you anyone here at all. I want to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe on him, to believe in him, to turn to him. Anyone at all? Raise your hand if there's anyone here. If there's anyone online, I can't see you. You can raise your hand and your heart and say, Lord, I'm calling upon you. Anyone at all? If there's anyone lying, you just pray, Lord Jesus, I'm putting my faith and trust in you. I believe in you. Cleanse me from my sins. Wash me. Seal me with your Holy Spirit. For I've decided this day to follow you, Jesus. Help me now to grow in your grace. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.